showtime. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another preseason edition of the Busted Header Podcast. I am Chris, a.k.a. Not the Fake Webby, and I am joined, as always, by Hal Bridius, a.k.a. Hal, a.k.a. Jake. Uh, why can't we have nice things? We, we're nice never things. allowed to have nice things. I got, like, we- 12 minutes of Killian Hayes, and then I get a concussion. We haven't seen Cade Cunningham in, like, two months. Uh, Sadiq Bey is not playing tonight. Uh, why can't I have nice things? I have a feeling your nice things are coming soon. It's still the preseason. We gonna be shit this year. I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't say we're gonna be good. <laughs> I said we're gonna have nice things now. We have nice things to watch. Can the nice, and the nice things, things suddenly be 25 years old and like, can we skip that? I'm no, all let's about enjoy. The, I'm enjoy all about the, the tank, process. Like... All right. I mean... Uh, where do we want to start? We actually had a, some kind of a list going for this that Jake made. Uh, do you want to start with the injury updates? That's my secret. I always have a list. Uh, I, didn't I just do the injury updates? <laughs> I guess you did. Very quick, <laughs> very quick success. Sadiq, Sadiq nice Bay has an ankle injury. Uh, Killian Hayes has a concussion. Uh, this is concussion number two, I think, for him. Um, Lauren, yeah. I forget her name, but uh, the beat writer that took over for i think vince ellis um mentioned that he had one in preseason against the knicks i think um lauren williams is that her name forgive me um so she, she i i thought there was one i couldn't remember it i think she mentioned that so this is concussion number two and kind of an innocuous one i don't know if you saw the play but he just like dove for a loose ball and like clipped his head off somebody's shoulder and like not like the craziest impact play. So that's just kind of surprising. And I guess they only found out, um, Rod Beard tweeted today, I think it was, that they only found out that he was concussed because like, he was uh, struggling like to see his phone. So like he played like a whole quarter with that. And not, I shouldn't say a whole quarter. He played like four or five minutes with the injury. Some of his best plays, like I think the finish he had over Xavier Tillman was after he was concussed. Um <laughs> And I guess, like, in the locker room, he was, like, struggling to, like, focus on his phone, and that's when they diagnosed it. Um, And then Cade still has not played with uh, his ankle sprain. I guess there was, like, some fluid in the ankle stuff, so it was more serious than originally thought, but they still think he's on track for early season return. We're not getting shit from them in terms of actual updates, so... um, I mean, let's just hope it's a simple ankle injury. Let's not... Let's not rush him back. Yeah. As much as we want to see him in the, you know, on the court in a Pistons uniform, and this is the long term we're thinking here. Don't. There's any possibility of re-injury. Don't rush him back because this team is going nowhere this year. So, right. And mandatory think, ankle braces. Everybody should just wear yeah. an ankle brace. Come on, guys. Get. It's it's like uh, uh, Jim Harbaugh came to Michigan and had like one offensive lineman go down with a knee injury and was just like, "Fuck it, you're all wearing." knee braces all of you it's I mean, <laughs> mandatory now like we're not doing this anymore i'm not losing anybody to a random pile up and that's just I how mean, i feel about ankle in, braces that's what we had in uh when i was playing high school football our coach made i was like a tight end offensive lineman we were actually talking about this before the pod but yeah. coach mandated we all had to wear 
these ugly knee braces and ankle braces. And he's you like, I don't care how ugly too? they look. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, I yeah. respect that. We had the whole nine yards. <laughs> I respect was, that. Mine were cool. I got them in black. They look nice, but <laughs> still, you, there's no way you can make a knee knee brace look more than average. No, like it Ooh. never improves the look. Uh, Frank Jackson just also like, mention... stepped on somebody's foot, and I, I was nervous for a bit. We can't we can't have any more ankle sprains. Um, mm-hmm. What we else? Mention that we are recording this during the middle of the Knicks Pistons preseason game. Yeah, third Just quarter. To, yep. Um, I out there. Uh, we're still waiting on Isaiah Livers to come back. He has not played mm-hmm. yet, and I feel like I'm missing another injury. And I'm just. Did Isaiah Livers ever have an actual like timeline of when we expect him to be back? I don't think the Pistons ever listed one, no. He had a more serious injury. I mean, he he, uh, went down in the Michigan's tournament run. Mm -hmm. So he's been been out for like four or five months now. Um, Yeah. I just don't remember if there was any, the Pistons after they drafted him had any timeline. I don't think we've gotten a timeline. I think that's still like early season is expected, but. um, Yep. So, yeah, a lot of injuries. Way too many freaking injuries for the preseason, but. That's what we get, I guess. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, uh, kind of on a longer, larger uh, thought of it, we keep seeing, especially last year in the NBA as a, as a whole, and now with this preseason as well, I feel like we're kind of seeing, maybe it's just from watching the Pistons, paying attention to the Pistons, but I, another influx of injuries and a lot of these kind of like small little ankle twists and stuff like that. Do we think that has anything to do with kind of the rush that last season was and this season still kind of feels... I mean, rushed. I feel like we just got done with last, you know, the finals. <laughs> I feel like the finals were just a couple months ago, and they really were. Do we think that has uh, any I mean, this we're on a on more normal schedule this year than we were last year, right? Like, there was we a much are, more but... normal preseason. Um, we definitely saw last year an uptick of injuries, and I don't have the stats in front of you, but I know, like, they, the guys who track it was like, yeah, there's like a 50% uptick, like a, sig- a a very noticeable significant uptick. I know we saw it in soccer too. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like ankle sprains are weird because like it's it's an ankle, like you stepped on somebody's foot, right? You know, a concussion is like you bonked heads. It's 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 hard to correlate injuries. Um, and, and frankly, that's why sports science in general has been really reluctant to say, anything about how you should or shouldn't rest people it's like right now um i don't know what it is really in basketball because they are different sports but like i know the prevailing theory in soccer is that you should get your your um your fitness in even in a rest day like you shouldn't be taking rest days you should still be getting not not a complete day off um like uh, I I remember, uh, I want to say it's Arsenal women's player Katie McCabe was talking about how she was she had in, an injury um, playing with her international team. Um, she's an Irish international, and uh, she was like, "It's weird. I was doing my runs and whatever, and and I guess she and the doctor got together and found out that she was doing like seventy percent of her normal workload that she did with her club team." And it was actually the the lack of workload that was causing her to have some some cramping is, issues, and uh, I think she had like a thigh uh, or like a hamstring pull or whatever. So like, hmm. you just fitness is weird, and we don't know everything about it. But like, yeah, we we definitely saw stuff from last year 
Um, and I think part of it's you have both the, the fitness issue and maintaining fitness and coming into the season fit. And I think you also just had like a mental exhaustion issue, right? Like yeah. you've played sports, obviously, you know, a, a large part of playing a sport is like knowing how not to get hurt while you're playing the sport, right? You, you're an offensive yeah. lineman. Uh, you go down in a dog pile. You're thinking all about where that foot is going, right? How is my knee not going to buckle in this pile? It's like a big focus for you. Uh, and I think when you get into these seasons and these pandemic seasons and they're just exhausting, I do wonder like how much of that focus you just lose. Like, are you smart enough and, and sharp enough to not land on somebody's foot where you normally would have, you know, just kind of picked that foot up before that? Like, I, I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of a fascinating question that we probably won't ever know the answer to, but. Yeah. And I mean, especially with, as you talk about, like in the COVID seasons with kind of the, not the lack of focus, but a little bit different uh, focus mindset. I think, I wonder if, you know, part of that could be, now you're playing in these kind of mostly empty gyms. You don't have that crowd noise to kind of keep you engaged and in the game, and you kind of just space out a little bit. You just hear the you know the sleep, like the the click clack of the shoes and the basketball bouncing, and you just you kind of forget that you're like in a game. And if that lack of focus, if the lack of atmosphere of being at like a professional basketball game would also play a part in that as well. So, um, well, I don't know yeah. like how many like subtle cues you pick up from the crowd. You know, like, how many times do you know that there's a defender closing in on you while you're in a fast break because the crowd is gasping? Or Like, I, I don't mm -hmm. know. Um, I do know we definitely saw statistically last year that the, the home court advantage in basically every sport was significantly reduced. So, yeah. um, you know, we definitely saw that that come up. But, yeah, I don't know about – it's it's hard to know. Home court advantage is another one of those things where, like, nobody's really sure, like, what – home court advantage is we just know that you have like a, an extra like six it's like a 55 45 chance of winning just from having home court like we just know that like it's what yeah, I'm, the, the the betting line is always like plus three for home court boom <laughs> exactly it's always a three-point swing especially in nfl minus is kind three? Of the, the rule of thumb it's minus yeah, three you, for home you, court. you have to you have to give uh, three more this is how you can that. tell that i don't gamble because i don't <laughs> ever remember that minus is better because I don't it, gamble. It definitely took me, when I first started gaming, it took a little while to be like, all right, now which side is what? The, so the minus is good. The Okay. I can never, but, I, it always takes me a while to be like, is the big money, like when they're like, it's plus 55,000. And I'm like, I don't remember if that's good or bad. The, well, that's the thing that always annoys me. Like when I do my gambling, it's with the decimal odds. So it's like 1.75 to 1. Yeah. It makes a lot more sense than whatever the, the 17 exactly and then and then they're like ah you have to bet a hundred dollars to win whatever this number is and it's like that's confusing <laughs> just give me a multiplier exactly that that's way at the point but i mean with the in terms of the home field advantage that's definitely something that kind of goes with the kind of like the hot hand fallacy when it's like that one's been like proven hot, to be correct the hot hand fallacy we have stats that say yes the hot hand fallacy is real because they finally found the right the right stats to analyze the hot hand fallacy. Because before mm. they'd just be like, ah, making two threes in a row doesn't impact anything. And it was like, yes, but what if you make multiple threes in a row in certain like time frames? And like people finally did a study that like added the right amount of context. And they're like, yeah, it does add, you know, a little bit. Like 
two percent chance of making it. You know, it wasn't a lot, but they're like, yeah, mm-hmm. we we have finally like seen the high hand fallacy because it used to be a famous thing of like ah statistics disproves the hot hand fallacy and it was like no basically your statistics just show that a 45 percent shooter is going to shoot 45 percent of the time like yeah you're not really analyzing context and context is everything here so gonna give you a reference on that when i was in college this was probably i think my sophomore junior so that was probably like five years ago six years ago um you oh we had oh you want to talk shut up (laughs) but but we were talking over the you know hot hand fallacy, and at the time, kind of the thought was, you know, it's statistics says it can't be done, it's not proven, and we had a discussion in class that lasted a good like half hour. So it was a, it was like a sports statistics or something like that, and we had like a half hour discussion on, you know, the statistics. The old mindset is that this is you know, disproven. It's something that's not true. And then you had other people like myself arguing, that's not giving it the full context. We don't have the right statistics to prove it, and like you said, later on, it was proven to be true. So, well, and, I think that's a, is kind of in a similar man, mindset as that, similar vein. It, it's a great lesson, that whole conversation in sports statistics in general. Because, like, part of stats is, like, don't trust your eyes because, you know, your inherent biases can lie to you. And part of stats is also the stats aren't telling me something I know to be true, so why are the stats wrong? Like... You know, both sides have to be able to come together and analyze, you know, understood deficiencies in the other side. And hopefully when you meet in the middle, you find something that agrees with your eye test and agrees with the statistics. And when you encounter something, um, you know, and you're trying to build a profile, a statistical profile to match an argument or whatever, and you encounter something that doesn't match up, you know, it's not that one side or the other is wrong. It's that you don't understand the relationship well enough yet and like you have to keep going until you figure that out and obviously that's something that you know i test crowd and people who don't really understand <laughs> analytics constantly fight about you know it's, it's the whole mid-range shooting argument and it's like analytics says that if you have a wide open mid-range shot shoot it and analytics says mm-hmm. that if you have a you know a relatively contested shot but there's two seconds on the clock shoot it (laughs) like analytics wants you to shoot the shot that's going to give you the most points in any situation and and analytics also says this is kevin durant taking you know a mid-range fall away where he's got like a foot on the defender is a good shot versus you know andre drummond shooting an 18 footer even wide open probably not a good shot probably a bad shot yeah Chris this, Paul should be shooting lot. elbow jumpers every single time he can possibly shoot an elbow jumper. Because he yeah, shoots like exactly. 57% on them. It's a good shot. That's probably the most mis- the biggest misconception, I think, with the analytics movement has been, oh, they don't want just layups and three-pointers. Like, they don't want anything else. It's like, no, we want wherever the most shot is most efficient. No, and, and you the look most at... Efficient op- most efficient outcome. You look at a team like the Bucks, right? And... You have a team that's really good at shooting threes, a team that's really good at pressuring the rim, and they win the finals, A, because they're elite defenders who get out in transition all the time. Defense as well. But B, because they're so good at at the three, and they're so good at pressuring the rim that it opened up a bunch of space in the mid-range, and when they did get into half-court situations, Chris Middleton was able to just kind of operate in the mid-range and score a bunch of like really tough mid-range shots. And you need a guy who can do that. And the reason he was able to get those shots is because they had set up this shot profile inside and out that, you know, everyone had to respect. So it all goes together, but 
you know, like the Bucks were, you know, um, Bud's a very analytics-driven coach. He always has been. He's always had a, a big respect mm-hmm. for that. And you see that his team played to get mid-range shots because they know if you're going to play us, you know, the way you're going to defend us, that's the weakness, right? That is the analytical um, uh, advantage is knowing that those are the good shots that we can create in this situation. So, yeah. It still befuddles me that there's not, like, a prevailing defensive stat that truly truly encapsulates how a defender plays. Like, there's still not, like, really any, you know, statistic you can point to and say, this is one that is indicative of defensive performance. And it's that's something that that's way off in the zone separate thing, but that really does annoy me that we haven't figured something out to at least kind of get a good idea that doesn't have Andre Drummond as, like, the greatest defender ever just because he gets a lot of defensive rebounds. Yeah, I... It's just, we could talk forever I mean, about that. You just think. you you think about it and you're like, how do you, um, how do you how would you create that stat just like in your head, right? And then you have to work back to what do I need in order to create that stat? And it's like, first of all, there is no such thing as an all-in-one defensive stat, right? You, you stop trying mm-hmm. to make them. You can't make like defense is going to be way too team contextual. It's going to be way too uh, opponent contextual. You can't do that. So then you have to say, how can I grade individual? defensive impact on a like a per shot basis is like the closest thing we can get and maybe you can create some kind of collective metric that says you know over the course of x amount of time you were this good at defending a shot my camera is like focusing in and out and it's making me nauseous i don't know how you're looking at this um you're very small on my screen i don't really want to see much of you (laughs) but like you know, if you if you create a metric that says person a, player A is um, you know X good a shooter in a certain position, player B defends them and you know is able to make them shoot X percentage over the course of games, like you can theoretically do it. The problem is we're also talking about sample sizes. You know, individual defensive possessions are tiny sample sizes. We don't trust a three point shooter's you know uh, uh, stats until they have multiple mm-hmm. seasons, right? Like 300 shots over the course of an NBA season, five or 10 makes swings a few percentage points and makes you look a lot better than you maybe were. That's why we see guys, um, you know, their their quote-unquote gravity is not does, is not reflected by their shooting percentages, right? They're, they, you're like, why are you sticking to that guy in the corner? It's like, he only makes 34%. Yeah, well, he makes... 48% of the freaking open ones, he's just never open. Um, yeah. You know, Wayne Ellington is a great example, right? Wayne Ellington is like a career 34% three-point shooter. I, I dare you. Please, please leave Wayne Ellington <laughs> open whenever you want. Um, so if you have all these stats, like as soon as you, as soon as you take defense and you realize that you have to get as contextual as you do, you realize you should probably just be watching film. And that's where it's actually, when, when you're trying to watch defense, it's most important to understand the offense on the other side, right? That's where analytics yeah. can help you understand the defense is you can, um, you know, you, you use your offensive tracking, your offensive statistics to isolate possessions that you want to look at defensively. And then you can go back and you can break those down through film and walk through those decisions and say, yeah, they got this shot off because the defense did this and that and the other thing. So it's still important to understand analytics and it's still important to understand the math um, of, of each shot and of, and how you want to build your offense because how you build your defense is to counter an offense. But 
you you just defense is always going to be a film first thing outside of a few i mean like looking at a few indicators like deflection generation is a good one if you have active hands you've got active hands usually it's pretty good um Mm -hmm. also uh deflections are better than steals anybody can get a steal um like there are a lot of people out there who get two steals because other people do all the work and they just collect a loose ball and it counts as a steal right collecting a loose ball counts as a steal whereas if you're the guy poking the ball free you may not get credit for a steal but you get credit for a deflection deflections are better than steals um you know like rim protection defensive percentage is all right you know it's not a be all end all it's going to be really really system um oriented but in the end if you've got a center who's allowing 48 percent at the rim they're doing something really good <laughs> like it, yeah. you know um there are there are reasons a center might be a good defender and still allow like 59 percent at the rim there's basically no scenario in which somebody allows like 50% at the rim and is bad at that. <laughs> you, you are doing something. Now you might be Brooke Lopez and you might not be able to do anything but defend the rim, but you can do that and that's fine. Yeah. You can build around that. Okay. I think we've gotten far enough off on those tangents. Um, anything else you want to talk about um, from the Pistons preseason games here? Um, I just want to, those were good tangents. I like yeah, those really tangents. Were. We got uh, theoretical tangents twenty so minutes out of good, good tangents. Um, I think we can go into a quick three things segment if you want over the last uh, okay. two or three games. I think one of the big things that I wanted to point out, um, we did get like two quarters worth of Killian Hayes. First of all, fuck those refs. I'm so tired. Killian Hayes, the first play of the game, just jogs behind somebody and puts his hand on his back. And it's a foul, and that's your first foul of the game. Like, seven seconds in. What are we doing, ref? Why? Why? Uh, Killian had John Morant's number all night, and it was great. Steven Adams had Mm -hmm. to foul the living hell out of him in order to free up John Morant. And anytime your center is, like, holding on to my point guard's arm, I know my point guard is doing a good job defensively, and it makes me happy. Um, Yeah, especially on someone like John Morant, too. Yeah. Um, But... More importantly, he didn't hit all his shots, Killian didn't, but uh, we did notice that the left leg swing is gone, uh, which is a good thing to see. That was kind of a thing he did a bit in the pros, and sometimes he wouldn't do it, sometimes he'd do it. Um, I, di- I haven't seen it yet this preseason, um, and I didn't see it as much in Summer League either. If that leg swing is gone, he's going to be a lot more consistent a shooter, um, especially on those step backs, if he can keep that down and, and keep that to a minimum. Um, he did shoot one mid-range shot, I think, where he shot it on the way down, but the other ones all looked good and in rhythm. So I'm just, I'm pretty happy with that progress. Um, we also saw like the best drive, most aggressive drive of his career so far. Uh, I don't know if you caught that one, but like we Mm -hmm. have never really seen him get underneath a big man and like get a shoulder passed and like fight down you know, while you're in a crouch to get past somebody like that, he just has never been that kind of driver. So to see him even try it, uh, and then I'm pretty sure he got fouled by uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. at the end of that drive, which is why he missed the layup. But uh, it's just like if you like to see a guy make a new decision, and that was a new decision for Killian Hayes. We don't know how often he'll make it, right? Obviously you want to see him finish it and draw the contact and whatever, but like it's just interesting to see a guy make a new decision and then the, I, I think the next part of that is anytime you see a guy make a new decision, you hope that it like turns out well so that he'll make it again. 
And like, he didn't finish. But if you're looking at that in, in film or whatever, at least he can be like, yeah, it worked. Like I got to the rim, you know, I got past my man. I should try that again. You know, maybe you mix up the next step or whatever. But like, uh, just interesting to see him try that because I've never really expected him to be a guy who was going to attack those situations. That wasn't really something I expected. So um, that was fun. Yeah, he looks a lot more kind of re-energized and a little more focused, I would say, than he did last year, which I'm sure was <laughs> like the mother of all like rookie seasons in terms of, you know, him not having a preseason, not having a training camp, everything that was going on with COVID, especially at that time. Moving to a new country. I will, I will say that her, that part is a bit overdone. I've had I've I've heard a lot of people be countries. like, "Oh, it's a new country and a new language," and it's like, no, guys, Killian grew up in Florida. Like his uh, his mom is French. His his dad is a is an American who played overseas in France and met his mom there, and so he he grew up bouncing back and forth. I just I just wanted to make that point that like. Killian did high school stuff here in the USA before going pro overseas. Um, he obviously speaks English. He has a pretty heavy French accent and stuff like that. But like that transition wasn't going to be a culture shock for him. Now, Det- I, uh, Detroit is not like Florida. <laughs> that might actually be a well, bigger culture shock than going from France to anywhere. Differences. But, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, the just. I want to say that bits is, is a little overblown, but uh, certainly going from, you know, one league to another is a big deal. Certainly the, the lack of preseason is a big thing. And I don't know. Uh, having your hip get fucked up uh, seven games in might might have been, you know, a, a hindrance to might, things. Might have had an effect somewhere in there. Yeah. I don't know. Just a little bit. Yeah, but just the way he's looked this preseason, he kind of looks a bit more, I think, like what a lot of Pistons fans expected of him coming into last year. Just looks a lot more comfortable, a lot more confident with the ball in his hands. And that's leading to plays like he saw with, you know, him driving and being able to look a little bit more aggressive and just comfortable. So good news there in that regard. Just get healthy and stop hitting your head, Killian. <laughs> Please don't I hit your head. a couple concussions. It's not fun. <laughs> you got something you want to talk about? Nah, nothing in particular I had. All right. I was uh, – I think I watched the what the first preseason game in full, but I did not get mu- a chance to catch much of the Grizzlies besides the highlights that you clipped. So, oh, well, and then it's like this half game, the game. I work. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> uh, okay, so the other thing we got to talk about, uh, Luca Garza is just toast. Like yep. it was really. Bad. I know people don't want to hear it, and like I have biases against the guy. I'm not gonna lie, but like. There was a play last night where there were multiple plays last night where he was so stuck in the mud that like the minute the play started, I knew that like 11 seconds later they were going to score. It just, it's just like, it's an inevitability because he's on the, I don't see him ever being in this rotation. Like ever. I I I think we, we were more likely to play Jamarco Pickett at center than Luca Garza from what we've seen so far. I feel like I try a lot to be kind of the devil's advocate on Luca Garza because I know you're not. Wedgie! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we got but, a wedgie. W- <laughs> devil's with, uh, advocate, my bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, I completely lost where I was going with that. I'm not going to lie. Oh, um, Garza. So I feel like I usually play the devil's advocate uh, just to kind of counter your points because you're not. You were. 
a well-known, not a giant fan of Luca Garza. But I think you make a really good point with Pickett, with kind of the versatility that he brings is a little bit, a little bit shorter, a little bit more athletic. Can kind of play the four and the five versus Garza is like, you kind of got to play him at the five because he would get torched by, you know, today's power forwards. It's if you're saving that last roster spot, that last like emergency center spot. I think I'd rather have a more athletic, more you know. I mean, they're they're, they're like both Pickett under contract, and... so they're going to be in the G yeah, League, right? Just, you know, but yeah. Well, are they both going to be in the G League? Yeah, Pickett's on a two-way, but I believe Garza's on a full. Garza's on a full contract, but it's still like a rookie contract. Like he's still eligible to be sent, and any any player can go to the G League. Um, anyone can yeah certain players have to like players with like more than three years experience have to like approve it like they have to they they, you can't force them there but like he'll be in the g league um Mm -hmm. i think the the thing i was i was frustrated with right is we know he's going to be a bad defender we know it he knows it um and, and and like that's frustrating but it is fine in a way right like if you are a really good offensive player and a really shit defensive player. Most people will be like, ah, well, offense over defense. I'm, I'm not one of them, but uh, a lot of people will be like, it's fine. Like, uh, who was the – he had a big mole on his head. He played for the Warriors for a bit. A big um, what? Big what? Was that? Big mole. Big mole. Um, so big he played for Florida and the Warriors, and oh, he was a big man who could uh, shoot threes. Uh, I know who it is. He wore the headband, didn't he? I don't remember if he wore a headband. I just remember he had the big, the big mole. Um, Spates. Spates. Most Most Spates. Most Spates. There it is. Yeah. Like most Spates was a terrible defender, but he could shoot and hit basically any pick and pop you gave him. Right. He was a great bench player because he could just make any shot, and he he damn well knew he could make any shot. Right. He took about. He was an extremely (laughs) confident shooter, and he hit most of them. And yeah. when you're trying to save six minutes of a game, that's good enough. I mean, so, Jamal Crawford is probably the prime example of that. If you can get buckets offensively, I'm saying this point in his career, Jamal Crawford. I mean, Jamal never won anything, so. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's, it's, you definitely have to J- win you want J- on, like, Jamal, team, the, the pro- so the, the, the thing here is, like, if you're an off-ball player, and you're just hitting catch-and-shoot shots and stuff, you can get away with it. If you are an on-ball, possession-dominant player, it's a lot harder to for me to say the same because if you're like a guard, you are going to get picked on defensively in a very special way. <laughs> like, it, I mean, even a center is going to get picked on in a very bad way. You look at it, Enos Cantor. So, so like the that's prime very true. But like Enos Cantor is a good example of like what I can do is just park Enos Cantor in the paint, play a pseudo zone, and like you have to beat my guard and as long as my guard like gets involved enough to like slow you down by the time you get to canter he can pretend like he's a good defender around the rim right yeah you'll switch out onto him every now and then. like canter in the like the biggest of playoff games is going to be food he is yeah. you know but you can just kind of get through segments of the game with Enos canter and he's going to rebound the hell out of the ball he, he'll do his job offensively you're fine with that Right, Cantor is a totally serviceable backup big. All the you know can't play Cantor memes aside, totally serviceable backup big. Should never have been paid what he got paid when he got that big deal, but totally fine. Luca Garza is 
a significantly worse defender. And if you're going to be yeah. that much worse, you have to be that much better offensively. You have to be a guy who rebounds the hell out of the ball because any defensive possession that actually does end in something other than a bucket, you have to get that rebound, right? That just it, it just has to be that way. So, you know, I didn't think he was very impressive on the boards. He was horrifying defensively. But then there was a possession. I don't know if you saw the clip. I, I clipped it, and it was one of the last clips I did. Um, but he's in the he's at one of the elbows. They're running a, like a handoff series or whatever. And he does that thing where he brings the ball down, and he turns and looks at the rim, and there's nobody in between him and the rim for, like, 12 feet. Like, his defender had, like, tried to, like, drop off to defend a drive, I think. Um, and he was left all alone. You have to hit that shot. Yeah. He didn't take the shot. He turned and looked for another handoff. That handoff didn't work. Then he turned back, was still unguarded, and shot the shot and missed it. That has to be, like, you have to be prime Dirk in that spot if you want a position on the team. You have to pull that trigger immediately, and you have to hit 50-plus percent of those shots if you're going to be doing these handoffs at, you know, 16 feet. It, it's yeah. just you you have to that is what your superpower is supposed to be yeah if you're going to be a bad defender a bad rebounder not great on some things offensively you got to be able to make the buckets when the ball is in your hands and that is one of the situations where if you're left open especially from like the mid-range i don't care who you are if you're going to play in the nba you got to make that shot exactly you gotta take it you got to make it yeah. like it, it's just you know uh ja okafor right like we didn't like him he was not good uh, Luca, you, you have to be better than him offensively, because you are worse than him defensively. Oh, yeah, that's that's where we're working with. And like, I would like to give him the benefit of the doubt enough to say like, he keeps working. We know he's a, a workhorse. You know, maybe he learns enough tricks to be a little better defensively. You are not even going to have a chance to do that until you are worth. A bucket, you know, until you're a bucket on every possession you touch the ball. You just, it, yeah. it, it, there's just no other wiggle room for you because you're that bad in other areas. And I'm sorry to say that. I don't like picking on players, uh, but it's very frustrating just to like, I, I don't, I honestly, I don't think it's fair to him the way the fans are like piling into the Luca Garza thing because you are setting him up for failure. You're setting him up not just for failure, but for abuse. Like, I try and keep everything about basketball, and I try and be honest. I don't I don't particularly like rivalries. I don't particularly like getting personal in any of this shit. But, like, He's we have seen what happens. Michigan and Michigan State at all times, <laughs> as long as they're not playing each other. Right. I, I just, I've, I don't, it, rivalry stuff, like, I want to see two really good teams go get, like, I'm really excited for this year's Michigan-Michigan State football game. You have two teams that were not supposed to be undefeated at this point in the season, and they're undefeated and and have, like, a pretty good chance of being undefeated when they meet and, yeah, most like, match up pretty well. It's going to be a pretty interesting game, and that's all I care about. I hope Michigan wins because I, I lean a little bit more Michigan, but that's all I really care about is that it's a good game. A um, little bit. A little bit more Michigan, just a little bit. <laughs> I watch most MSU games. Like I, I oh, root do? harder for Michigan, I know but you like, do. yeah, it's I'm it's not that were... much. Um, but the point is, like everyone loved Seku his rookie year. Oh, he's going to be the best. We love Seku. Look at the the French Revolution. Yada. 
minute it was his sophomore year, you're shit. We don't want you. Get him out. Get him out. Get him out. Just ha- like think- Stanley Johnson, same way. If Luca doesn't doesn't play well, either a he becomes the meme player, right? The human victory cigar, the the living joke, and like he just gets a like it's just a, that's a weird, uncomfortable place to be. And then you like you go overseas, yeah. or you're a player that's just abused constantly on. And honestly, the the victory cigar guy gets abused constantly online, just not yeah. when he's playing. Not in the same light, yeah. But like, you're just gonna get abused online, and then you're gonna get sent overseas. Like, that's not healthy. So mm. it's it's you know, I'm hard on him in a basketball sense because I don't think he's a uh, an appropriate player for this team. I honestly think he's gonna kill it overseas whenever he finally makes it over there. But like. It's also just not healthy for the community to treat him this way because you are the same people who are in my mentions right now as Luca Garza stand accounts with Luca season handles. You're going to turn on him in two years. We just know it. It's not fair. I will say the one thing that Luca has going for him is that he's an end of the second round pick. You mentioned Seku, you mentioned Stanley Johnson, and there's plenty of other Pistons draft picks that were hyped up and did not turn out. But they were all first-round picks with a lot more expectations. Whereas Luca, I think part of the reason why people are hyping him up so much is unfortunately for kind of the beam factor and for I mean, there's probably some Iowa fans in the crowd. There's probably oh some my God, you know, people so that like him in college. Fans. I think literally twenty percent twenty percent of my mentions are people with Hawkeye badges. Like it's it's wild. I They're was, everywhere. I, I felt disturbingly good about all the press that Iowa fans got over the weekend after they, like, were, what, cheering when a Penn State player got hurt. Because I'm like, yeah, in my experiences with Iowa fans, they're kind of like that. It's, There's it's, nothing else to do in Iowa. They're not. I, I don't they're, know the only The how? only thing you can do why. is care wildly about either Iowa State or Iowa because there's nothing else in Iowa. Yeah, it's just a, a weird group It's of Nebraska that, without any of the history. It's just not a good place to be. <laughs> but like Wisconsin fans, I ran into are pretty nice and jolly people. I've never. That's because they Nebraska got a shit ton of cheese. Cheese is better <laughs> than corn. We know this. True. True. <laughs> We're gonna have all the Iowa and Nebraska fans in our mentions, but all twelve. I agree. Of them. <laughs> okay. We're we're off topic again. Do we want to cover um, one of your major themes? I don't know what. Well, we've these. we've hit it. We've hit a few things that um that I didn't expect to hit. Let's pick least. one of these here. Um, Saban and Isaiah Stewart versus Saban and Kelly Olenek. If Saban's playing, I really want to see him play with Kelly. Like, for the same reasons that I want a rolling big man with Killian, because I think it just kind of plays to his rhythm a bit better. Clear the, the rim for Saban, please. Yep. You're not helping Let him. him go to work. Uh, by playing him with Isaiah Stewart, who cannot roll hard to the rim, like he he can't match Saban's speed. So if Saban actually does get like a good like head of steam going to the rim, uh, Stu isn't there to like bail him out. He's he's two steps behind because that's it's just not who he is. Um, yeah, and I mean, at this point in his career, we can't expect him to always know where to be in like at that time. Well, I, I actually like Kelly Olynyk who's been around forever and kind of I, I think he's good in, at that. I think I think one of the things I've liked about Stu, um, I'm just saying, there's certain nuances that it's going to take some time for him to pick up on. Well, I, he's never played but, with but I I, I think that's actually a strength of his. I think um, like when he plays with with 
Killian, you know, I would like a guy who's a little better going up for the ball, but like he has this great ability. Um, he he understands how to match the level of the defender as they go down and just kind of make sure that the defender is always playing a 2v1. Stu is really great at just feeling that way, um, you know, when a, a guard is just kind of probing his way in. But if he's not already in the paint there, you know, if he came up and set a high screen, he's just, he's behind the play. And then you get Stu, um, you know, he'll, he'll just pop instead. And it's like, I'm sorry, guys. I know everyone wants him to be a stretch big. He's not. Like, he's not ready for it. His shot isn't there. I don't think he's confident in it. I don't think he's ready to pull the trigger. I, I kind of think, actually, when they uh, they gave him, like, the super green light last year at the end of the season, we're like, shoot every shot you can get. <laughs> I, I think that may have scared him off a bit. Like, I, I think he's been a little more hesitant than he was to start last year. But I, I would just – I think playing with Kelly um, – a, he's got a little bit of the Plumley thing to him, where like he's he's a good operator in the DHO game. Like he can he can do the fake handoffs and um, like whatever the rescreen equivalent of a dribble handoff is. You know where you pull it and then you flip your hips and you you know you represent the ball to the other guy. Um, you know he can do the thing where you fake it, you pivot, and you shoot. And like I, I just think that there's more. Um, it, it's a better fit between the two, and I want to see them paired together more often than I want to see. Um, Saban and Stewart paired together. So to kind of make sense of that, so you'd prefer to see a rotation that had a little bit more Isaiah Stewart with, you know, Killian Hayes than with Saban and a little more Kelly with, so kind of keep the kind of the bench players together and the kind of the stars together a little bit more. I think or if you're, you if, see Kelly if you care about, if you care about the offense, you want to see Kelly in the lineup, right? That it's, he's the better offensive player. It's, it's shouldn't be a surprise more, yeah. to say that. Um, and I think, um, so I think I would probably still start Kelly. I've, I've been saying that for a while. I, it would not surprise, uh, and I should say, I would start Kelly if I cared about winning the game. And I would start Kelly, I think, because I, I, I think that he fits with a Cade Killian backcourt a little better. Just the options there are a little easier. But I think if you're going to play Saban, I don't expect Saban to get a lot of minutes. If you're going mm-hmm. to play him, you need to put him in positions to win. You're likely not going to play him with, with Sadiq and uh, Grant, right? He's going to be playing with Josh and Hami. You need yeah. spacing and, you know, you got to help him out as much as you can. Um, you know, that's just yeah, generally my a good point about playing him with Josh and Hami. Right. You need a little bit more spacing around there. I mean, we saw it last year, right? We, we saw a lot of Saban, Stu, Josh lineups with, uh, you know, it'd be like Saban and DeLon Wright and stuff. And just like, it gets ugly. It gets grimy. We don't. We don't want it. So, um, yeah. I just. I want to see. He. He's a guy. I don't expect him to get a lot of minutes. When he does get minutes, I want those minutes to be about Saban, and about what can Saban give us. Is Saban really ready to be a a point guard on an NBA team? We saw really good flashes last year for a team that didn't care about losing, mm-hmm. and I don't think you're. I. I don't think you would have seen the floor for a team that had different priorities. Um, those flashes have to be constants because, um, you know, in a very different way, but similar to Luca, there's there's enough flaws in his game that you have to be really good at the stuff you're good at in order to see the court for a real team. I think yeah. he's got, obviously, much more potential to grow in areas than, than Luca does and, and solve his problems. I think that's more experience-related than it is physical limitations. But, um, you know, you have to pressure the rim 
every possession, which by the way, he does. He had like, I think the yeah, most drives 100%. per 90 of any player in the NBA last year. Any player. Like he, I think that he drove more per minute him. than Russell Westbrook. It's he's, it was wild, but like you have to do that every play. Cause that's what your strength is. You have to be a good defender. Cause you're long and you're strong and you're quick. You got to play defense. Um, and uh, yeah, again, I just want to see him put in positions to succeed. And it's the same for like Hami, right? I want to see Hami in whatever position makes Hami succeed. Uh, that was one of my other notes is like, I want to kind of let, have them let Hami cook in some of these preseason mm-hmm. games. Like let him run these pick and rolls, let him attack empty sides. Um, you know, you re-signed him, you brought him back. Theoretically, it's because you see something in him. If the only thing you see in him is like the same thing that SVG saw in Stanley Johnson, there's not much of a point to this. <laughs> I mean, there's never a bad thing signing a young player to a reasonable contract and just seeing what like happens. The, there's, there's no downside to it, right? There's no risk yeah. to it from, from a team-building perspective. But it's just not fair to the player to bring him back and say, you know, we want you here if you're just going to put him in the corner and be like, ah, shoot the three and, you know, maybe drive out of the corner if you get close. Like, you got to bring him up above the above the break and have him run some pick and rolls and have him involved. When he was scoring, like, 20-point games last year, that's where we saw it, right? We didn't see it. Um, it, it was never 20 points because he was hitting multiple threes from the corners, right? It was 20 points because he was getting mm-hmm. to the line and because he was driving. and um, You know, so for, for Saban, for Hami, for all the guys where we're not really sure what they are yet, uh, I guess the, the overall point is let's put them in positions to succeed. Um, I, I think you're with me on this. I don't know if we've talked about it. I am totally ready to tank this season away again. I don't oh, give 100%. a fuck about any more wins. <laughs> yeah. Right. So yeah. I don't no care if this if whatever the lineup is doesn't make sense for your rotation defensively. Like, I want these guys to, to be comfortable and to win. And if that means putting together a lineup of – you know, a mixed starters bench lineup and giving Saban more touches than he deserves, you know, compared to the talent around him, fine. That's what I want. Yeah, I mean, this is, what, year one of a, at least three-year rebuild, so... Two, no expectations. Two. We, we count last year as part of the rebuild. Oh, yeah, year two. We just finished year one, is yeah. what I meant by that. Yeah. So we're we're, in, a, we're a year, year in, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a long way to go. I do not expect nor do I hope that this team tries to do anything towards trying to make the playoffs of the playing game or anything at all. So. I'm going to be watching a crap ton of Paolo Banchero film this year, and I want that to mean something, okay? On lottery day, I want to feel like I've got a chance. I am all right. so far behind. I don't even have a clue who that is. <laughs> uh, he's like, uh, how, do I, how do I describe Paolo Banchero? Uh, he's a big forward who could be a five. He's kind of like, he's kind of Blake Griffin-y. Um, not quite as explosive as young Blake, but like yeah. he's a forward who's got some playmaking skills. He might eventually be like a guy who can shoot and playmake. Uh, he's a good athlete, not not an elite athlete, but like a pretty good athlete, really smart defender. Actually, that's the, that's probably the thing he's got over what Blake offered. Just like, he'll be one of the like top three draft picks this year, along with Chet Holmgren and AJ Griffin is the, is the other name to watch out for. AJ Griffin is the the um, the green of this draft, and Banchero is the Cade, and Chet Holmgren is the Evan Mobley. Gotcha. Okay. I think I've heard of Chet. I don't know. You've you've heard of Chet. Chet Chet was the guy. Uh, it was like Imani and Chet were like the big names for American mm. basketball 
Um, Chet's like the seven seven one guy, uh, seven foot I should say, seven foot seven one guy who's got like a handle and can shoot threes and it gets like really weird Kevin Durant comparison. It's like he's not that kind fuck? of tall player, but like Chet's Chet yeah. Holmgren is is a really interesting player out of Minnesota. Um, and then Paolo is your is your is your freaky forward. And then AJ Griffin is your like six five guy who can jump and shoot and do all sorts of fun stuff. And actually, I think Griffin and uh, Banchero are both at Duke this year together. And then uh, Chet's at Gonzaga, which is he's the most yeah, Gonzaga yeah, like player that. possible. I love that. <laughs> the 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 tall skilled white center being at Gonzaga, shocking, shocking. Wow. <laughs> yep, yep, that checks out every single bit of that. The math works. We'll talk more about those guys later in the year. Trust me, that that will be happening. Plenty of time before we get into that. That's why I'm like, I don't know who these guys are yet. I'm sure I will. (laughs) All right. I think that is enough for today. We'll see people next week with uh, more uh, discussions that have nothing to do about the game that's currently playing. I mean, it's still a minute 44 to go in the fourth. Uh, Yep. By the time we talk next, and again, we don't have a set schedule for this, but by the time we talk next... Uh, definitely the last preseason game will be gone. Yep. Uh, it might even be regular season. Seven days away. The minutes might matter. <laughs> we might have something to watch. We might see Cade Cunningham in a hey, Pistons uniform. Hey, hey, You watch it. You put that hope out in the universe, the Pistons will snatch it away. <laughs> <That's fair. laughs> All right. Talk to you guys later. See ya. Today's music was made by Blank and Kit. You can find a link to their music in the description.